Welcome to The Experience Makers, a brand new podcast series from Cognify, WPP Marketing Technology Consultancy. I'm Jo Milne, I'm a journalist, and once a month I'm going to be reimagining customer experience with Cognify and their guests from across the marketing technology industry. We're going to delve into everything from what today's consumer really wants, right through to technology that feeds the experience economy and digital transformation. Whatever stage of the digital journey you're on, if you're in business today, this one is for you. In this episode, we're going to be talking about why diversity is good for business and some of the particular issues we face in the MarTech sector. We'll aim to explore the implications of not only having a diverse workforce, but why companies that focus on inclusion are more successful. We're going to be joined in the studio by Karen Blackett, UK Country Manager at WPP, Tag Warner, CEO at Gay Times, and Daniel Painter, consultant at Cognified. Karen, I'm going to start with you. Tell me, what does diversity mean to you? I talk a lot about diversity in two ways. First of all, I talk about the Avengers because I've got a nine-year-old son who's obsessed with Marvel. And for me, because I've had to watch a lot of Marvel films, the Avengers is, to me, a default for diversity. So lots of people with different superhero powers coming together to work as a team with one common goal and one objective. And that's brilliant diversity when you can appreciate different superhero skills coming together. And it doesn't mean you always have to get on, um, but and you don't always have to have consensus. But when you have that uh, unique superhero skills and difference coming together and it's celebrated that's when you get results. So I I sort of talk about diversity in the the language of Avengers, but I also talk about, look, diversity is when you've got lots of different people in a room and they've got lots of different backgrounds and that's brilliant because that's where amazing creativity comes from. Inclusion is when those lots of different people have a seat at the table. But for me, the true sign of diversity is about belonging. When those differences and those different people with different backgrounds have a voice which is listened to and is heard. That's when you have true diversity and it's when it's appreciated and when it's celebrated. I love that, Karen. Thank you for that. Daniel, let's go on to you. Give us a little intro and and what you think about what diversity means to you. The main thing for me is around, um, there are lots of different definitions and it's in conversations everywhere at the moment. And there's one end which is very much about the celebration and like it's kind of a bit, utopian in a way because like we actually look at the problems on the ground with a lot of organizations and they just cannot do that celebration of it the issue is a lot further down the the chain in terms of where they actually need to make changes to make you know diversity and inclusion actually part of their agenda so for me the the vision is celebration but the reality is what can we actually do um, in organizations on the ground to make those small changes and to educate people to bring a voice to the table and to make sure that people's voices are involved in decision making whether that's in hiring promotion and the the future of the organization because the reality is it is about decisions and it's about making sure people's voices are heard and if we can get that right we can then start celebrating and making sure people then understand other people's cultures backgrounds so for me that's the that's the, the goal but there are really kind of fundamental things we have to get right first to get to that Awesome. Thank you, Daniel. Finally, tag, little intro and what diversity means to you. Diversity for me is, it's always a challenge to kind of uh, define it. I think I think of uh, diversity personally as an opportunity because opportunities in, in every respect, you know, in life and business, etc., will come with their own challenges. You need to understand them. You need to be able to um, understand how to approach something. And I think that often diversity can be oversimplified and become quite tokenistic within organisations. So 
the thing that I think about when I think about diverse, um, you know, teams, diverse opportunities, the benefits is about people feeling seen, heard and understood. And I think that actually comes to your belonging point, Karen, really well, which is being seen and heard and understood. Those three different things Mm. can be complicated, but they're also vitally important. And I think when I think of sometimes about diversity or I hear people talking about diversity, what I often see is um, this horribly kind of tokenistic view of a kind of pick and mix conversation of people around a table. And I think that's when I see people use diversity as a kind of guard to say, no, 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 don't come for me. My team's diverse or something. And actually being seen, heard and understood, those things require um, your own understanding of who you are. It requires an ability to look inwardly at your personality, your your you know uh, your approach to work. It requires a level of um, emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. and all of those things mean that sometimes I see what on paper might look like a less diverse and you know inverted commas team perform better mm-hmm. because actually they've been able to understand their differences mm. and see that as an opportunity to come together. So I think diversity is absolutely an opportunity for each individual as well because. When I think about um, diversity for a what what we often call, at least in gay times, a default identity. So default identity within LGBTQ, just to explain that, would be a white gay man. Um, because that is unfortunately, but but just through through media, ours included, how the wider world has seen LGBTQ is a white gay man holding a pride flag. That's kind of the default, if you like, um, for many people within marketing. Um, but that's an opportunity. Diversity is an opportunity for white gay men within LGBTQ to understand more about who they are in contact with the community. So I think I look at it as definitely um, something that's exciting um, and a responsibility for each individual yeah. to have within themselves. Because what I often see, which I find really challenging, is let's say like a default identity. I am a white gay guy. Um, identify not necessarily with the word gay as much, but. Um, you know, I exist within LGBTQ, but I see that as an opportunity and that's learning for me rather than something that's not to do with me. Mm. And I do see people kind of opt out of it sometimes because they think like, that's for somebody else. Mm. That isn't for me because I am in a default identity. So how on earth could I even talk about diversity? Mm. Which I don't agree with. Amazing tag. I want to build on a little bit um, something you said right at the very beginning of your intro where you said, uh, you know, Gay Times Mag has been doing really well because of diversification of business. Mm. And I find it interesting that this is something that's seen as obvious and normal and needed in order for a business to grow is, you know, make sure you have many different revenue streams or products or different things that you're doing. But when we talk about diversity in terms of individuals and employees, it's seen as more as a sort of CSR initiative. Um, So I'd love to hear kind of your guys' views on arguably the very obvious question, you know, why is it good for businesses to be more diverse? Karen, maybe we'll start with you. To me, and I don't understand why people don't get this, because it's just so obvious. If you think about the UK and you think about the makeup of modern Britain Mm -hmm. it is an amazing fruit salad of people and in order for businesses to grow you absolutely need and it's something that Tag said to be able to build empathy with that fruit salad of people it is much easier to do that if you have people who have walked in the same shoes as the consumers or the audience that you're trying to communicate and talk to. What we do in terms of marketing communications is we create content, which the best type of content is content which reflects a consumer story. And you can get your brand story as part of that consumer story, which means that you have to understand all the different stories of people in modern Britain. And 
it, it, to me, it's so weird that we've never had to have justification of all white teams or all straight teams, but mm -hmm. somehow we have to put the business case together for more diverse teams. Mm -hmm. And I don't get it. I, I genuinely don't get it. Because to me, it's just common sense. And it's also, it fuels creativity. Mm -hmm. I love getting in a room with people who are different to me, different background, different story, because that's a massive spark for my own energy and creativity. And I know I come up with better ideas when I can mm. bounce off somebody else. Mm. So for me, it's, it's look, if you want to grow your business, talk to the audience that you're trying to communicate with. Best you have some people that really understand them and have that real empathy for that audience. And also, if you want creativity spark off different people, different energies, different ideas, different backgrounds. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's kind of why I, I wanted to link it back to what you said, Tag, mm. about, you know, you said the reason this magazine survived is because we've diversified our business. Mm. And and that's such an obvious thing to say mm. at a business conference on a business podcast. But the minute, as I say, we say it in this different context, it's seen as just a justification-led mm. thing. Yeah. So maybe you can build a little bit on what you Yeah, know. absolutely. I think um, what, Karen, you were saying there about the kind of how you reflect out through things like Marcom, you know, marketing communications, you're reflecting out a, a world through content, better content, you know, more successful things should be reflected from the team within. I think one thing that I've noticed is, is that um, it, it kind of gets into a bit of business psychology, but there's absolutely a room that I've been in with several people that look and sound very similar, who all are very good at sitting around a room and telling each other how brilliant they are. And that, I think, in business, especially when you come to media, has been the prevailing thought mm. that we can all sit around and create success. Because if I sit in a room with people that all look and sound like me saying how amazing a campaign was, there is this kind of psychology where if we all say it enough, does it then therefore make it successful? Yeah. And when your friends work in the press and they can report on it successfully, yeah. and when you can tell people what to think, then that generates success. It's an urban myth. It is, <laughs> yeah. it is. Yeah. And what's amazing is through, you know, loads of different things, you know, kind of um, communication breakthroughs, technology, social media, blah, blah, blah. All of that kind of BS, if you like, has been shattered yeah. through multiple different platforms. In, in one of Karen's businesses at um, Mediacom, they have got a cultural consultation. And... What I like about that, and I've actually seen this happen, is marketing professionals, quote unquote, in a room feel incredibly challenged by people who don't look sound like them. And they hate it. Mm. They absolutely hate it because for the first time sometimes in their career, someone's come in and said, you know what, that isn't success to and me. And that's uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. And it makes them feel yeah. uncomfortable. And that's when you get this kind of weird dichotomy of people often then labelling kind of like a success. Um, I've actually heard someone say, you know, diverse teams are more disruptive. And I was like, yeah, of course they're more disruptive, mm -hmm. but that's a good thing. You're, mm -hmm. you're, you're equating disruption to a negative. Mm. Um, when actually that person's voice that you've never had in the room that now has a, a seat at the table is actually kind of cutting through the prevailing sense mm. that let's say your campaign is brilliant and said, no, that actually might not speak to me or even more so, that might offend me. Mm. And that's so shocking, I think, for people in our industry sometimes to see. Mm. So to kind of relate that back to gay times and, and how we've developed... Arguably, when you have, let's say, a magazine brand where you're outputting media, you are in a bit of an ivory tower. You know, when you're sitting at um, the equivalent of Vogue House, throwing magazines out the window, there is no, there's no, there's no feedback. There's no feedback. You're printing a magazine and people read it. That's 
End of. Finished. Accountability is not there, is it? There's no accountability. There's no feedback cycle with social media, with digital, with content platforms, with advertisers now having a greater connection through to the audience partner. You've got so much transparency there of how people are receiving this. So arguably, when when I took on Gay Times, you could look at an organisation that would be, you know, quote unquote, kind of successful, if you like. But actually... Was it speaking to a whole LGBTQ audience? I don't think so. Was it actually speaking to a very small individual, you know, group of people in the audience? Yes. Were they doing a good job at that? Probably. But was that, um, is that okay? Or is it it fair to say that represented a whole community? Absolutely not. So you've got to go inside and really Mm. dramatically rip up and sort of dramatically change an organisation from the inside so that the thoughts, the way that people speak, the way that they see other people completely changes. So it was an aggressive change, really. But it's so exciting to see if that come through to such success now and so many different platforms and the way that we work with brands and and media agencies and etc is so mature and developed now in a place where literally it was as simple as someone working in you know equivalent media owner business going oh there's a media owner let's put an advert in a magazine job done you know, it's so not like that anymore. Mm. I think it's interesting what you said there about um, it's seen as disruptive to have diversity. And it's funny because it's you go to any innovation conference and they talk about, let's be the disruptors. Disruption is amazing. We need to disrupt this industry. But actually being disruptive in the true sense of the word is seen as a, an annoyance. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious about this discussion in the sense of it's a... As you said, it's common sense, mm. but it's still seen as you being subversive or something to suggest mm. change. Daniel, I wondered if you had any thoughts. I on think that. what the problem is, is that we people know that change needs to happen. But as we know, organisations and people hate change. So it's like, you know, you almost it's like having a very nice vision. Like I said, a utopian view of where we want to go. But the reality is that we in order to achieve it, the journey is horrible. Mm. You have to change people's minds, which is the hardest thing Um you know, you have to encourage them to have different behaviours, which we all know is like, a very, like one of the hardest things to do in any organisation. I think uh, picking up on the point that Tag said around, you know, we I think we still see in sort of in many different agencies, you know, there is a there is a set way of doing certain things and designing things and designing websites and designing apps, which mm-hmm. has kind of come from a convention which we've inherited. Um, and we don't really at the moment until we step out of line and start challenging, OK, is this user experience good for this community or are the people who um, use our websites, for example, accessibility is a huge thing for us. And this kind of goes a bit more into the tech world. But it's like, how do people who are partially sighted use our websites and all these sorts of things until we get into that mindset of understanding okay we're thinking about everybody now who's going to use our sites and in some countries it's in the law like in the US you have to build digital products that fulfill the needs of the majority of your consumers um, but that doesn't touch on socio-demographic groups mm. right so and, and we haven't really started that conversation yet in maybe in you know the wider digital sphere around how do we market to people of different backgrounds mm. even though they sit within a certain socio-demographic group because as tag and Karen will you know testify there's so many different ways you can segment up the people that we market to and we're getting to this stage as well at, you know within tech where we're starting to personalize things and and it brings in this whole new era of how do we make experiences to, um, you know, unique to individuals and groups of people? And then how do we get the information to make that happen? It's going to open up a can of worms around what's ethical and what's not mm. as well. Um, I think just to go back to that original point, it was a very, it sounds like a very easy problem to solve, which means that people try and create easy solutions. All of us in this room will probably, you know, say that 
a lot of companies went down that whole quota route where they were like, right, we need to get in X number of women, X number of people from the BAME community, all of these things mm. doesn't obviously does not work because mm. this is fundamentally a culture shift, um, which is one, like I mentioned, one of the harder things to do and something that we do need to um, think of as a huge business challenge, not something you can change by just changing the demographic of your organisation overnight. And just focusing on pipeline as well. Yeah. So many organisations, to your point, when you want change, it's like, right, well, let's bring in some different people. And mm. you bring in some different people. And then to your point, the culture's not there for yeah. people to stay because they don't feel as though they belong. It's back to the very first point about belonging. Completely. Yeah. I think just to pick up on that as well, Daniel, the one thing that I think we we've touched on obviously within the kind of maybe the definition of diversity is also how we originally thought about the world if you like when you're talking about tech right so you're talking about building platforms what you used to be able to do is say we're going to look at like a population and build it for the 90 percent and actually don't worry about the 10 percent because 90 percent of the users will be able to do the good for them but actually i think what we started understanding is is that every single individual has things about them that makes them you know, diverse in their own right. And we can't assume anymore that 90% of the population is one fruit in the fruit salad. Yeah. To continue, Kaz. <laughs> but, but that's the yeah. thing. And actually the fruit salad is, and when you actually look at the makeup of this country, it does not look like what lots of people it's think it looks like. It's not apple and orange. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. it's, and it's, it's mad. So when yeah. we look at, so we just did some research actually with YouGov around LGBTQ audiences and we're the first people to come out to say the majority of Gen Z, over 50%, do not identify exclusively as straight. Yeah. Mm. That blows people's mind. It yeah. doesn't blow my mind because I know yeah. my audience and I know my community and I, I speak to these people every day. But for so many people, they're thinking that that's bonkers. How on earth could you say that over half of children or young kids or teenagers don't identify as straight? Because, of course, we'll always assume that the majority of people are straight and other people might be gay. And mm. that's and then it goes down from there. Mm. But it's the way that people are thinking about the world that starts changing. Mm. And kind of just to go back to your point there, Daniel, finish off, it's that is so disruptive for people mm. because you've got to hold, you have to rewire your brain. <laughs> I can't even think about talking mm. to like my mum about that, you know, sometimes because yeah. it's like you have oh, to yeah. rewire someone's motherboard yeah. Yeah. to understand how the world works. And I think that's where from a disruptive point of view, and we were actually saying just before we start recording, I know there are some amazing, challenging organisations that are out there right now that are kind of, for lack of a better phrase, you know, effing stuff up yeah. and, and ripping up the rule, rule book a yeah. little bit. I mean, but, even some brands that you wouldn't expect as well. So I was uh, a, a judge at Cannes this year and it was Volvo and it was all about designing vehicles for everyone and the research and they'd gone back 40 years to look at all the research from um, crash test dummies and realise that the people that got hurt the most in car accidents tended to be women, teens and children because the crash test dummies were designed for a man. Yeah. And it was just, and and the brilliant thing about that case study, and, and it wasn't about awareness, it's about actually having the data and sharing the data and what you can do and going forward. And they shared, shared it with all manufacturers. So it was Electric Vehicles for All, I think the campaign was. And sharing that data with everyone. And, I, and it's just a brilliant example of a default, of what you do in an industry sector where there's a default, because to your point, it's, it's about 90% of car buyers may have at one point been blokes, mm-hmm. whereas actually 55% of car buyers now are women. Yeah. yeah. Yet we are still got crash test yeah. dummies, which are 
designed on a male physique. And I think that builds on the point around, you know, having diverse business, having diverse employees, creating diverse products. It's not just about avoiding offence or trying to make people feel good. It's these are people who are buying products. These are customers. You know, it's it's money to be made by doing things differently. So let's build a little bit on what you said about the people who are doing it right or people who are doing things interesting. What When you guys look at organisations who are either building products in diverse ways or speaking in ways that address very different audiences who do you kind of look to and think wow they're they're nailing it or at least trying hard <laughs> but one brand that I really admire is Diageo um, I love Sil Seller the global CMO I just think as an organization they are doing so much in terms of their own makeup which then translates to the communications that they put out to try and ensure representation and to try and ensure that you know they've got a load of alcoholic brands and they're not just looking at targeting men and they're thinking about a female perspective they're making sure they've got the right number of women on boards they're looking at ethnicity in terms of the ethnic diversity of the content as well as their board so I love Diageo I love Unilever as well I think they were first out the gate when it came to really looking at not just diversity but sustainability as well so you know, and I think that comes from the leadership of any organisation. It really does. So I really admire sort of those two brands. And then I look at communications as well. So you can't help but in our industry look at, mm. you know, some of the ads that you see and think, oh, that's just a tick box where the story's diversity. And mm-hmm. actually the story shouldn't be diversity. That should just be the norm mm. rather than making it the hero of an ad. Yeah. So I see some terrible examples, which I won't name the brands, of <laughs> where diversity is the hero of the story and you can see it's just a tick box and then others where it's just the norm yeah just the norm i was going to ask you daniel a bit on that is is there a difference then between creating a diverse product if that's the right word um that suits different types of people versus um you know an image of diversity in order to market the same product i think in the past year in this kind of diversity um, conversation we have seen the uprising of many brands sort of have this faux persona and basically i think what's happened is we've got we've got a leadership who have basically realized that you've got two camps you've got the people who really really care right empathetic want to make a difference and you'll see that filter all the way down through their Mm. products through that advertising which will be they would have got media partners and and, you know um, creatives who actually their brief has been from an empathetic place you then have the people who obviously are trying to make a quick buck off the back of the diversity bandwagon I guess and I guess Tag you've got a lot of kind of experience Mm. in that from an LGBTQ perspective um, and just seeing that on the street and then I don't think that's real business change and you will not see um, the diversity and the kind of the strategy come through in terms of their product, in terms mm. of their service, mm. in terms of their frontline staff, in terms of everything, because it really doesn't come from an empathetic place. Yeah, right. And I think what Karen was saying about leadership, you know, the leadership is absolutely fundamental. And what you'll usually see is in companies like Unilever, you kind of, um, you always can look to the top and you can always pinpoint one person mm. and you can almost guarantee that that person or that group of people is responsible for all the changes that cascaded down from a visionary perspective Mm. and if that doesn't exist at that board level or at that sort of top senior leadership level it's absolutely not coming from a good place Mm. and I think that's always the telltale sign for most organisations Yeah, picking up on Dan's point when we started speaking to Apple about their relationship to LGBTQ it was 
you know, Apple's actually had some very public LGBTQ leadership of the organization. And, and, and of course, from a brand perspective, has always aligned itself with values that I think are, are in line with things that we see as, you know, much more kind of aspirational from a, from a consumer perspective, from a, an organizational perspective. So when they came to, when we started a conversation with them about LGBTQ, it's refreshing. This is how kind of we work now with brands on a much more strategy-based level. Is we would say, um, as Daniel was kind of saying, this has got to start from a a business perspective within the organisation. This is not a DNI agenda, like you know, tokenistic decision. And also, if you're going to start talking to us in the months of June and July around Pride, <laughs> we're having a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because that in itself, you've already shown us the way that you're thinking mm-hmm. by when the meeting went in the diary. Mm. Yeah. So when the conversation started much earlier and we were saying, how do we actually approach this? What we then said is, okay, where are the stakeholders in the business? Where's the business commercial depth, if you like, in this conversation? So it doesn't fall into a kind of DNI bucket that seems quite tokenized. And, you know, um, not that this should be the case, but doesn't necessarily get the respect that it should within the business. And then from a consumer's perspective, we talk about where's the kind of overlap? Where do you meet the LGBTQ community? And how do you show up? So when we looked at Apple Music as the consumer-facing brand within the organisation, and it's kind of on Karen's point there, which I really like, we then looked into the insights, you look into the actual uh, relationship of music um, from an organisational business perspective, and you find a world that has been created for predominantly white, straight people to be successful. Because, of course, through record labels and marketing functions and uh, producers and, you know, entertainment owners. That whole world is based on a narrative mm. that you create a Britney Spears that will appeal to a certain demographic and therefore you'll make money and be successful. This idea that anybody that didn't look like that mm. or a- appeal to that sort of demographic was just so bonkers to them. So when we found that, we were saying, actually, if you've got this problem, how uh, from you, from an organisational level, all the way at the strategic point, all the way down, down to the marketing, the communications, the purpose of the partnership, all those things, can it all relate back to one overarching narrative which is that we need to work harder to break lgbtq artists and musicians into this industry Mm. because they've for so long been um, put at a disadvantage and when you can trace it back to that point that gives the organization it gives us it gives you know an end consumer an absolute concrete narrative of why are they showing up why are they doing this Mm. so that when you come to see a a great piece of marcom or you know a marketing material even if you think oh this looks great and it doesn't feel that tokenistic if you do your research and you go into the depth of it you can actually understand where this has come from why are we actually talking about this why is there a need for them to show up to lgbtq so that instead of of kind of slapping a rainbow on something and it being in the month of June or July and we're doing like a fun pride playlist you know mm. which everyone's done mm. there's a real business need there which is that actually there's a huge amount of creative talent and artistry in the world which has been given a back foot for so long and it so becomes it, much more organic doesn't it and yeah. it gives them a purpose yeah. because actually when you meet together what you've got is gay times from a perspective of audience interaction mm. you know we have the biggest um, audience of LGBTQ people in the world by lots of different measures but we understand that audience we have so many intrinsic partnerships with organisations community groups etc on Apple side what have you got the world's biggest streaming platform that that together is a powerful combination but on its own those two entities on their own actually don't necessarily have that power so i think that's when it gets very exciting from a diversity perspective when you've got a 
a really clear purpose of mm. why you're showing up. Mm. So I want to ask the, the next question then about responsibility because, you know, we're predominantly in the, the marketing media tech space in this room, right? Mm-hmm. And if we're talking about, you know, a partnership with Apple and Gay Times, you know, you're predominantly talking about a, a marketing campaign, right? From At least that's where they're starting. But the problem goes into product, which is what you basically said. So there was responsibility of what Apple does as a company physically in its product and in its service versus what it says during the month of June, July or whenever. And so how, where does the responsibility lie in terms of not just how you talk about things, but how you actually edit the company itself, the operations of the company, the how, you know, it's, it has to go all the way through. So where, who's... Well, that's, in- why, that's why it has to come from the, the top. Yeah. That's exactly why, because you can't just have something that's externally facing and then... You know, internally, there's something else going on. I think sometimes I really do think we underestimate consumers um, and we think that we can paint this brilliant picture of what how we want to show up and how we want to present ourselves. And actually, then the customer experience is something totally different. So it, it has to come from the top. You know, let's be real. Nobody is perfect. So... You also get paralysis from companies not wanting to do anything because they think that they're not perfect themselves. So that means that they then can't do anything in terms of external communications. We all have to start somewhere. But that, but that was going to be my next question, right? If you're working for a company, you're, maybe you're listening to this podcast, you're not the CEO of the company. You aren't the top. Yeah. What can you do? What can you do? Oh my God, you can still influence. I mean, it doesn't matter what level you are. If you've got a viewpoint, you've got an idea, you absolutely have got the background to it, you can influence it. It doesn't, and you need to have that connection with the stakeholders. Um, and, it, you know, it gets back to that frustration about having to justify doing it mm. when you don't have to justify being all white or yeah. all male. <laughs> but you, you need to have, you know, your statistics and your case studies lined up. But it, you absolutely need to be able to do the external plus the internal or yeah. else there's conflict, there's mm. total conflict yeah. and consumers won't buy it either. I want to end on a bit of a practical note because I think we can have this discussion. I think obviously we are all on board in this room, right? We already think about this quite a lot. But I think instead of it being a shaming thing for people who aren't already doing stuff, let's maybe we can talk a little bit about practicalities. Because I think sometimes the kind of for me anyway, when I think about diversity, it's more than saying, okay, which organisations can we go work with? Is there a, a POC organisation or a women organisation or an LGBTQ organisation? Talks a little bit about authenticity. How do you get the the mindset? Like, what does that look like? So, give you an example. One of my diverse things, other than being females, I come from a working class background. That's very invisible unless you understand Scottish accents. Um, and so, how can you, instead of kind of going, we should maybe sponsor a women's event, or maybe we should ensure we hire more women of colour, or how can you be more authentic in your approach? to diversity. Karen, maybe we'll start with you. Look, I I think part of it has to start with, do you know what you're trying to change in your own organisation? And, you know, ex-media planner, I'm all about the data. So what does your data look like for your organisation? Because going in and tagging on to a women's event or, you know, a black event, why are you doing it? What, what, the organisation that you've got, who's there, who's turning up, who shows up, what's the culture that that organisation creates. So it always has to start with a data point in terms of knowing who the people are that work in your organisation. 
hopefully any responsible business knows who they're trying to target in terms of their own target audience and then looking at where there's a deficit in terms of the types of people. So I, I know the advertising industry and there's the Advertising Diversity Task Force that I co-chair. When we've done our own survey amongst our sort of 26 agencies from across, from loads of different uh, networks, and we look at the organisation, we look at the industry that we represent. You know, I think the average in the UK is one in 14 people have been to private school. In our industry, one in three at senior leadership have been to mm. private school. I mean, my God. So actually knowing that data, right, we now know we need to do something yeah. about social class. So for me, it starts with the data in order for you to then work out a strategy in terms of what you should be doing, because that leads to the the right direction rather than just sporadic branding and badging that happens. Awesome. So data is our first practical Absolutely. practical point. Daniel, yeah. let's go to you. I think, um, firstly, like I mentioned earlier, action is better than inaction. So, mm. you, And you should start small. Like, don't try and be, you know, don't think about the, the end picture and be overwhelmed by that. For, you know, the number one thing I always say, and I've done sort of work with a lot of few organisations really on changing their culture and it's around really getting people authentically talking to each other hold you know sessions with different groups of your organization various backgrounds or even targeted to very you know specific socio-demographic backgrounds and get people's views and opinions and that also that qualitative side of the of the data as well because that really does help sort of add a add picture to the mm. overall overall message um i think secondly it's to empower employees and um, i think like we said, the only way that people will self-improve um, the situation is if you give them the license to do that. Mm. And that means basically um, encouraging people to start their own societies, encouraging people to start their own, um, it, it, do their own innovations in-house, maybe give people like half a day or a day a week in some organisations where they can do their own thing and their own research and development on, in anything. And it could happen to be an initiative that improves DNI, mm. um, and I think thirdly, and I think this is overlooked, and this may you know, this is one of the harder like th those things I just described are kind of soft changes. But for me, a lot of the reward and discipline structures in organisations is not set up to improve DNI because the wrong behaviours are rewarded mm. and the good behaviours are not given the kind of correct recognition mm. by organisations. And we sort of, if you don't suddenly look at which people are getting promoted in your organisation? Mm. Who are we actually bringing up through the ranks? Why was that person chosen? Um, you know, and if there's not in, like sort of investigation and analysis done on that, you don't realise what sort of behaviours are actually driving your underlying culture. And until you understand that, you know, you're not going to be able to make changes. And as soon as you say, right, as soon as this, as soon as you say something that's out of out of line, you're going to be disciplined um, in terms of grievance process. But that's, you know, the end of the you know really hard place to be. But you want to reward people for doing the right thing and for doing things which improve DNI. And until you find out what behaviours you are rewarding and not rewarding, you can't you can't change that really. I love that. I think that's a fascinating point. Yeah. It is because we look as uh, someone that runs a business, there are. KPIs and bonuses and stips put in place for top line revenue growth, for margin growth, for PBT growth. 
And there should be the same level of weighting when it comes to any form of diversity metrics. And there isn't always. There isn't always. It's seen as indirect, I yeah. think, is yeah. part of the problem. It's, it is hard, it's quote unquote hard to measure totally. to some degree. Tag, let's go to you. We're going to talk about, we're talking about practical changes. You've set me up beautifully. Because <laughs> what I've written down, you can check, is success criteria. Oh. And that's my point. Um, so there you go. We're kind of to end, end or continue on Daniel's point. Challenge your success criteria. Mm. I work so much, you know, at that um, senior board level of the organisations. And I have a conversation around, um, you know, success in LGBTQ. And quite often, gleefully get told that actually we chart very highly on a certain index. Or we did an award-winning campaign at Cannes last year. So, end of. Thank you so much. Job we're, done. Job done. In, you know, we're brilliant. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> and then, you know, it... it you have to kind of almost disappoint people and you could become that annoying, disappointing voice. But when you challenge the success criteria, you then realise the success criteria is problematic and it's riddled with issues based, again, on everything we've spoken about today. People that have been setting the success criteria are only from a particular background or understanding. The people who then measure it maybe have a certain view or bias. All of those things. And I'll give you some kind of a couple of examples that work quite well um, that I, I've helped some of our clients to um, kind of understand this, if you like. Is that when you've got business case around something like uh, a campaign, uh, let's say based on LGBTQ, um, if you create a campaign um, that is uh, actually um, a little bit homophobic or quite tokenistic or might border on transphobia as a brand and you put that out into the world and you get feedback, if the person on the judging table that can is a little bit transphobic and homophobic without any understanding necessarily of themselves, they will actually be drawn to that and rate that highly or feel them more drawn to something and see that as successful, even if they don't really understand why. So actually, when you look at all these things that have happened, people often challenge me and they go, well, we did something back and you're saying this is actually really problematic, but we got a load of praise for that. And I said, well, actually, where did the praise come from? Mm. Who told you that was successful? Because, and then when you start looking at the layers, if then within LGBTQ, a white gay man told you it's successful, then you also then have to understand that that white gay man has a huge amount of privilege over and above many other different parts of the LGBTQ community. So when you start asking um, people in the community who are not white or people who aren't, you know, male cisgendered, and they go, yeah, that's really problematic for me. Of course, that for me is is understandable. I've seen a million, million times that happen, but people don't understand it because they're saying, but we did a great LGBTQ campaign and we won an award and it was I've brilliant. So, uh, honestly, I've heard that so often yeah. where it's all... This, this campaign's not tokenistic towards a certain ethnic race. I've checked with our ethnic friends. <laughs> I know. And I'm like, you do, that person does not represent the whole community. So your yeah. success criteria does not belong in yeah. one award show. And it does not belong in an equality index. I've gone into organisations and first-hand experienced people who rate very highly on LGBTQ equality indexes. And you've got people there saying, actually, that's because that measure and the framework was set up by somebody of an identity that I have nothing to do with. I don't understand that particular identity. Yet, because it's a, it's become a, a, a number on that's published in the Sunday Times, everyone kind of sits around clapping themselves and going, we've done a great job. And so I guess to kind of finish that off, and it's the way that I lead Gay Times, 
it, it can sometimes feel a little bit, um, as I said, it, you can sometimes feel like a bit of a depressing voice. And I'm not. I'm a I'm naturally optimistic person, um, and I lead lead the business in a very kind of visionary and optimistic way. But the one thing is that I always know is that actually the job is never done, and success has to come in the journey. Because if you feel like you've got to number one on your equality index, or you've won a you know a Grand Prix at Cannes, you can't say we're done. You can't. Mm. And you've got to find success in the journey of all of this. Because a lot of my senior team sometimes say to me, you know, half jokingly, you know, um, sometimes it feels like it'll never be good enough. And I go, you know, and that's that's fair enough. And that's good feedback for me sometimes to say, you know what, stop. Great job. Well done. Let's move on. But actually, when you understand that it's always going to not quite be good enough, you can actually take a bit of kind of solace in that and realise that this is all about the journey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not about a destination. Yeah. We'll never be done. Mm. Um, but if you find that your success criteria matches, Dan's point, mm. that journey, mm. then you're redefining success criteria. Yeah. Because if the success criteria is to become number one on a list published in the Sunday Times, then you've got yeah. to challenge the success criteria. Yeah. I think one thing to kind of wrap us up here is um, that I think has been really brilliant about this conversation with the three of you is that it's insanely practical what you're saying and I think sometimes discussions around diversity or at least the perception of discussions around diversity can feel uh, fluffy to people or something that's not rooted in measurement or or business or money or profit or whatever you want to um, look at and it's you know pushed into something else it's not our responsibility so I'm, um, I'm very grateful for you guys for bringing it back into this very practical perspective on, uh, on this discussion so thank you very much for joining us on the show You've been listening to The Experience Makers, a Cognified podcast. You can follow us at Cognified on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram, or you can visit us at Cognified.com. Make sure you check out next month's episode where we're going to continue the experience conversation on the theme of culture change as it relates to digital transformation. Our guests will discuss what culture change looks like, the impact it will have on business and some practical ways to advance culture change in your organisation. We're going to be joined in the studio by Leo Raymond, CEO at Grey Consulting, and Lisa Humphreys, UK Strategy Development Director at WPP. See you next time on the Experience Makers Podcast.